the presenting sponsor of Top Ducks is Netflix, now presenting the documentary series Harry and Meghan. From award-winning director Liz Garbus, the Boston Globe calls Harry and Meghan a fascinating look into a profoundly rarefied way of life. Emmy eligible for outstanding documentary or nonfiction series. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Ryan White, the director of Pamela, A Love Story. Ryan White is a multiple Emmy-nominated director whose films include The Case Against Eight, directed with Ben Kotner, Serena, Dr. Ruth, Assassins, and Good Old Frida, as well as the Netflix docuseries The Keepers. Pamela, A Love Story, spoiler alert, it's about Pamela Anderson. I hope that it's a re-examination of her life and how she fits into cultural legacy and iconography and really re-examining the way that we as society and the media looked at her during the height of her fame in the 80s and 90s, and then follows her life now, which with Pamela Anderson always seems to be full of surprises. So I think it becomes a little bit of an adventure story as she's deciding what's next in her life. Last year, Ryan joined us on Top Docs to discuss his delightful documentary, Goodnight Oppie. He also directed last year's short, State of Alabama versus Britney Smith for Netflix. In our conversation about Pamela, Ryan talks about how he came somewhat reluctantly to this project. But he was convinced by Pamela's son to take a Zoom meeting with her, and his perspective changed. And it's pretty clear from the film and from our conversation how he came to fully embrace Pamela's candor, sense of humor, spontaneity, and her lack of any pretense or putting on of airs. Heck, she doesn't even wear makeup. What you see here in this portrait is what you get. And what you get is very different from the celebrity Pamela of Baywatch and Playboy and the Tommy Lee sex tapes. She's very down to earth. For goodness sake, she's Canadian even. Who knew that? I sure didn't. In fact, she's quite intelligent, thoughtful, and talented. So check out this highly engaging portrait, which is streaming on Netflix. And then I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with the always engaging Ryan White. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Ryan White, the director of Pamela, A Love Story. Ryan White, welcome back to Top Docs. Thank you for having me again. It's great to have you back. We always enjoy having you on the podcast and definitely enjoyed Pamela, A Love Story. I'll just start off by saying the last time we had you on Top Docs, it was to talk about your documentary, Goodnight Oppie, about the beloved Mars Exploration Rover. And as I was watching the first part of Pamela, A Love Story, it occurred to me, and maybe only me, <laughs> that in some odd way, there might be a connection between these two stories. One thing we learn in Oppie is the extent to which folks anthropomorphized him, treating him in some ways like a person and investing their emotions in him. In Pamela, we see somewhat the opposite effect in that people treated Pamela in many ways like an objectified sex object and not a fully fledged human being. Did you, by any chance, think about the different ways the two subjects of these two very different films were thought about and treated? I did because I was making them at the same time. I don't think I had the very introspective sort of dichotomy that you just came up with where one's a robot being completely humanized and one's a human being being dehumanized. My friend Jason joked that they're both documentaries about women running across the sand. So there's always that overlap, but they were really fun films to make at the same time, not because I was thinking of anything, especially thematically or relating Pamela and Oppie the robot in that many ways, but more because they were so different stylistically. And I was making Oppie for about a year before I springboarded into Pamela and Oppie was a really COVID-bound film. You know, it's mostly archival. 
and mostly visual effects done by Industrial Light and Magic. And that was really fun and creatively rewarding to get to work on. But it was very outside of my wheelhouse in that we were locked within our homes during those years we were making Hoppy. And so I was making a lot of that film from my home. And Pamela was my re-entry back into the world when COVID eased a little bit. And the film was shot mostly on the island that she lives in Canada, where she grew up and where she's moved back to now in her 50s. And so it was a really fun re-entry into kind of my verite roots, which is really the type of documentary filmmaking that I love to do most is being inside somebody else's life and being able to spend a ridiculous amount of time with that person. So Pamela really allowed me to do that in a way where I was very run and gun and verite style shooting again that hadn't been happening during the COVID years. You've made a number of docs about women, some famous ones like Serena Williams and Dr. Ruth and some not so famous women. How does your approach differ depending on whether the person you're making the film about is an A-list celebrity or a quote unquote average person or somewhere in between? I definitely don't seek out celebrities as documentary subjects. We as documentary filmmakers get pitched a lot of celeb docs, and I say no to almost all of them. And those three women that you just named, Serena Williams, Dr. Ruth, and Pamela Anderson, seem probably, on paper at least, quite different from one another. But I would actually say there's quite a bit of overlap in who these women are. By who they are, I don't mean their biographies, I mean how they operate in life. And so what drew me to Pamela and Serena and Dr. Ruth previously was how little interest she had in making a documentary. None of the three of them are people that are surrounded by managers and agents and publicists who are asking a lot of questions from the beginning of the filmmaking process. What is this film going to be or how could it be? The subtext of that would be how could it be a marketing tool for this celebrity to stay famous or become more famous or promote an album or a product or whatever that may be. From the very beginning, Pamela was very disinterested for what the final product would be. She was very intrigued by like the artistic collaboration of spending time with me. And so that's to say all three of those celebs were very non-controlling in what I ended up making. I think there are three women that have been you know, chewed up and spit out by society and media in a lot of ways that they don't really care that much what people think about them. They're not doing a lot of brand management, perhaps Pamela more so than any of those three. And so she was really just along for the ride. And Pamela never saw the film. She handed over all of that archival to me from her entire life. She handed over every single handwritten diary that she's ever written since she was an adolescent girl it was tens of thousands of pages of diaries. And she just said, use them freely. I don't need to see what you're using. In fact, I don't want to see what you're using, but have at it. And so in that way, just like any non-celebrity, she was a dream subject when they don't really want to be a part of the process. They don't want the curtain pulled back in any way that involves them too much in the editing, but also the final film. It was a really interesting moment for me in the film when she does give you that permission on camera to use the diaries however you wish, take whatever approach with the narration you'd like with the diaries. But it occurred to me that this is both very liberating, but also potentially very intimidating for you as a director, because I think often it's from the constraints or the limitations that are put on artists that sparks their greatest creativity. Because it's like, how can I overcome this limitation or this constraint to tell the story I want and do it in the most interesting way possible? What was it like for you to basically have free reign over all this material? And it is a lot of material. Oh, it was incredibly intimidating. In fact, I'll say it now because it just got returned to Pamela this weekend. All these 10 crates of tapes and diaries made its way back up the West Coast, up to Vancouver Island, and are now safely back at her home. But 
We've also been the caretakers of that footage. It's sitting in a closet in our office for the last two years. And we felt an incredible responsibility, not only to keep it safe, you know, knowing how valuable that footage is, as we saw with the stolen tape that made tens of millions of dollars for the people who stole it and proliferated it on the internet, but also to make sure that we treated Pamela's past because she was going to be so non-controlling of it and was going to have no idea. She doesn't even know what exists in that footage. She's never watched it since it was shot. So to treat her in a way that knowing she had been violated so much in the past, that footage had literally been robbed of her, to use it in a way that was that was respectful because she wasn't going to be signing off on it. You know, when you have every word that Pamela Anderson has ever written in her life, it's absolutely nuts to me that she handed over that. I can't imagine, even as a non-famous person, handing over every inner thought I've ever had throughout my entire life to a third party. And she was willing to do that. It was a very debated process. Every moment that has ended up in the final film has been debated endlessly by editors and producers and anybody who worked on our crew to decide what the best embodiment of who Pamela Anderson is. And so it was a huge responsibility. That's why we include that moment in the film where my plan all along was for Pamela to read her own diaries and I thought she would be open to it. And we include the moment in the film where I throw that idea out to her and she shuts me down right away. That's a really great example of the Pamela Anderson brain, I think, because for as wild and free-spirited as she is, she's incredibly self-aware. And that was her moment of saying to me, like, Ryan, this is a very bad idea if you want me to start revisiting these diaries, not only for me, for my psychology, and my past trauma, but also for you as a filmmaker. If we pull the curtain back in this way, I might become involved in this film in a way that you don't want at all. So I very quickly folded and we pivoted there. But yeah, it was definitely a unique creative challenge. And as you said in your question, sometimes those are the most exciting. They're probably the scariest moments as, as filmmakers at the beginning when you had one vision and then it gets completely exploded by something, but they are often then the most exciting parts of the filmmaking process when you have to problem solve and pivot creatively. So how did you come to this project or how did it come to you? The esteemed sales agent, Josh Braun, he brought the project to us, myself and my producing partner, Jessica Hargrave. I remember he texted us and said, I have a great one. I think you guys could be a good fit. Let's talk about it. And Jess actually spoke with Josh about it. And she texted me and said, it's Pamela Anderson. And I remember my first response was, that is a great documentary subject because Jess and I often joke, we're going to run out of celebrities soon. And the celebrities where we are at now are not like the top tier documentary storylines to us, at least. But that was one where I said, wow, that must be an interesting woman with an interesting story to tell. So it's a good documentary, but I said, no, thank you. It's probably not for me. And this wonderful producer, Julia Nottingham from Dorothy Street Pictures in London, she had already lined up access to make the documentary with Pamela through Pamela's son, Brandon. And so Josh and Julia said to me, like, just have a lunch with Brandon and hear him out. And at that lunch, Brandon told me all of these things about his mother that really unraveled all of these preconceived notions I had about her that were the reasons I said, no, thank you. But I didn't know if I totally believed Brandon because he was pitching a documentary about his mom. And so I was still saying no, thank you to Brandon politely. And Brandon basically begged me. He said, at the very least, just get on a Zoom call with my mom. I think you guys are going to find each other really funny, is what he said. And I remember thinking, like, funny isn't the adjective that comes to mind when I think of Pamela Anderson, but let's roll the dice. Let's try this out. So I had a Zoom the next day that lasted for like two or three hours with Pamela. She was in her boathouse in Canada, and I was here in my kitchen in Los Angeles. And everything about her just surprised the hell out of me. Our conversation topics what she looked like, zero hair or makeup. Just her persona was so laid back and funny and honest and raw. 
And I just remember thinking the whole Zoom call, we could just translate the surprise that I'm having right now into a documentary film. I think audiences are going to be really surprised as well. And as we know, when you can chip away at people's preconceived notions, when you can have documentary subjects that surprise people, like you thought they were one thing, but this is actually what they are, that's usually a recipe for a good doc, and especially a good celebrity doc these days when celebrities are so out there on social media that you feel like you know who they are. And Pamela felt like a relic of the past that had been perceived as one thing. And I was looking at her thinking like, wow, she's completely different than how she's publicly perceived. And so that was the beginning. I said at the end of the Zoom call to her, like, I want to do this if you want to do this. And she said, I want to do this with you. And that was where the plan was hatched. And we began from there. She won you over via Zoom. <laughs> she did. <laughs> I think you've given us a sense of this, but just to clarify, in terms of your level of familiarity with Pamela before you embarked on this project, I'm guessing you did not have all 11 seasons of Baywatch on DVD. I did not have them on DVD. Conveniently, they are in Amazon now. So we did watch a lot of episodes, but I can't claim having watched all 11 seasons. But I think Pamela's only on four or five of them anyway. This is true. But Pamela's not somebody that you, I don't know, probably spent a huge amount of time thinking about in terms of her public image or just an interesting figure in American culture. Is that right? Yeah, I, I can't even tell you. At that point, when this was pitched to me a few years ago, when I had thought about Pamela Anderson before that, Dr. Ruth was very similar. I remember when Dr. Ruth was pitched to me as a documentary subject, it was like, I didn't even know Dr. Ruth was still alive. And it was like, what happened to her over the last 30 years? It was the same thing with Pamela. Like, man, she was everywhere because I was a teenager in the 90s. So she was one of the most famous people in the world as I'm coming of age. And I don't remember when she started disappearing from my consciousness, but it happened at some point, and it's at least a good 20 plus years that I hadn't spent time thinking about Pamela Anderson. That I love as a documentary subject, like where has she been for the last 20 something years? And the answers to that were all really surprising. It was like, oh, she hasn't been trying to be famous. She hasn't been trying to be um, an actor and she hasn't been trying to make a lot of money. She receded from the spotlight because of what happened to her with the stolen tape. And she tried to exit that world and raise a relatively, I'm using relatively in quotation marks, a relatively regular family as much as you can when your parents are Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. And so that trajectory really surprised me and that she had returned to this island where she grew up and that she had married a local and that she was living on her grandma's land, gardening every day was not where I expected Pamela Anderson to be. And so sometimes it, those are like, I think the most fun documentary subjects where you're not a fan of that person. I, I loved her growing up because she was an icon, but I didn't, I wasn't a super fan by any means and I had forgotten about her. But a lot of ways, I think those are the most exciting celeb doc to make versus being a huge fan of someone's music and making a documentary about the writing of their album. So you refer to Pamela going back to live in her hometown and on her family property in Ladysmith, British Columbia, which is not a town I had been familiar with prior to your film. It's a small town on Vancouver Island in Canada. I also did not know Pamela Anderson was Canadian. I must confess that as well. Me neither. Me neither. And Pamela talks about this idea of coming home as this kind of safe place or refuge but the irony is that growing up there it was anything but a safe place for her, as we learn in the film. Her parents had a very tempestuous relationship. She was sexually assaulted as a young girl on several occasions. And you were there filming with her and observed her in her home environment. How do you think she's able to reconcile her lived experiences in Ladysmith and make peace with this place and these difficult childhood memories? That's a really profound question. And I love that question because I think it digs at exactly who Pamela Anderson is, or at least what my film is about. Because I think my film in a lot of ways is about generational trauma and memory and how we romanticize the past. And Pamela will be the first to admit how guilty she is of that throughout her life, including her parents' relationship 
like you said, that was a very combustible relationship. It was very violent, but her mother and father are still together in a passionate marriage that has lasted for 50 plus years. We forget that these mega celebrities are human beings, and I'm guilty of this too, and that they go through the same patterns that we all do in our life where trauma affects us in a way. And so no matter how famous Pamela Anderson got or how famous her boyfriends or husbands were, she was repeating the patterns and seeking that same sort of relationship that her parents had. Even she thought moving back to the island was where she was going to live out the rest of her life. And she had romanticized that and basically thought she was going there to die and she'd marry a local and she'd finally have a fairy tale ending and she's away from Hollywood. And while she's there, she moved there right at the beginning of COVID. And then I arrive excavating all of these memories for her and stirring up all of this past trauma by asking her to talk about it. She comes to this conclusion that she has made the wrong decision. And we're watching all of these old archival tapes of her, especially with her marriage with Tommy Lee and them starting a family together. And she's watching them through these very romantic rose-tinted glasses saying like, those were the best years of my life. I'm not ready to die yet. I'm chasing that feeling that I had in the 80s and 90s when I met this man, Tommy, but then as we're going through that process, she's saying, no, again, I'm doing the same thing where that was a traumatic past and I'm seeing it too romantically. I'm romanticizing this actually quite dark, traumatic relationship that I had because I'm forgetting all of the bad things and only remember good things. What I see in the trajectory, at least of the two years that I was with Pamela Anderson, was this coming to terms with the fact that she needs to be on her own for a while. She needs to stop chasing that relationship that her mother and father have. And I think Pamela has been married five times. She goes through a divorce during the middle of my film. And we couldn't have written it any better. In fact, if we had written it, it would have been cheesy that Pamela took on this role on Broadway, where, of course, she's always been discounted as an actor. And, and Pamela will be the first to say she's not a singer or a dancer. And so... She takes on this role where everyone's expectations are so low, but she's going to do something for herself while single for one of the first times in her entire life. And so I think she does still live on the island, but I think she has come to the conclusion that it's not the final stop. It's not the final chapter in her life that she thought it was going to be. That Pamela Anderson, she has a lot of life still yet to live, and she has a lot still to prove, I think. And what's been really fun in the last year, especially since our film came out and her memoir came out and she was in Chicago on Broadway, is you feel this surge of support behind Pamela Anderson that I don't think has ever happened in our culture, where people are like rooting for her now. I think we're evolved enough to know that she should have never been a punchline or a sexually objectified object in the way that she was. And people are starting to recognize maybe this is a more interesting woman than we gave her credit for, or a more talented woman, or whatever adjectives you choose. But there's a lot more depth to her than we gave her credit for. And I think people are ready, are ready to rally behind her in a way that's never happened. I think if I could capture the essence of your film and Pamela in a few words, it would be something like, yes, no, maybe, what's next? I mean, the most unpredictable person that I've ever met in my life. And I'm talking on the micro and the macro. Like I had to be fine with showing up at her house with a plan and then she would explode that plan right away. I always relate Pamela to a fairy and she's just floating through the world, ping-ponging her way around. And so no narrative is tidy in her life. She likes to explode any sort of predictability and so she's all over the place in that way. So I had to embrace that. I like that myself. So I think I was a well-suited documentary filmmaker. I, to follow that, I know some of my friends that are in the industry, she would have driven them crazy by being so unpredictable. But I had to be okay with being very nimble and just along for the ride and having no idea where her journey was going and therefore where my film was going. But yeah, I think your encapsulation is pretty spot on of who she is. Pamela, as a public figure, really was born on the cover of Playboy. 
we see in the film that Marilyn Grabowski, who's a Playboy photo editor, takes her under her wing and really introduces her to the whole world of Playboy. And it's a life-changing experience for this young woman from a small town in British Columbia. She gets photographed many times for the magazine, and eventually that leads to the role of CJ on Baywatch, and the rest is history. My question is that it seems like Pamela has an overall positive take on her work with Playboy, and in fact found the experience of being photographed quite liberating. And yet, I feel like there are undercurrents about what this scene at the Playboy Mansion was like and just the lack of financial equity that those being photographed had in the whole enterprise. When you were delving into this part of her life and career, what was your sense of whether she feels she was exploited in any way? Pamela is a really interesting woman, especially in today's age, I think, where we often live in the binary and you're right or you're wrong and we're so polarized. One of the things that's so interesting about Pamela and can be controversial about Pamela at times is that she lives in this real gray area. Like she's a real free thinker. So she doesn't subscribe to ideologies, even that I think she should subscribe to. And so she's very nuanced the way she sees these things. She's also an incredibly forgiving person. So I think some experiences that she went through, if it were a different human being, would be shouting from the rooftops, I was exploited, or this was unfair. And Pamela doesn't see it that way. So Hugh Hefner is a great example. All those talk show hosts that we show throughout our film degrading her or objectifying her are a great example. Baywatch is a great example. She made okay money, but she was the face of that show and she did not get rich off of that show like other people did that created the show or may have been on the show. But when you talk to her about these people that intersected her life, she refuses to look back on a lot of them with condemnation. It's kind of a, it is what it is type of thing. And she sees her life as this amazing. She often relates herself to Mr. Magoo, who is like just stumbling his way through life in all of these situations. And she always says, and somehow I survived all of them. So she sees them all as like these integral junctures in her life that took her to the next juncture. But she doesn't spend a lot of time thinking like I was wronged in this type of way. And I didn't want to force that in my film because that's who she is. Her sons see that differently. Brandon will shout from the rooftops like she was exploited. She should have been making more money or these talk show hosts. They owe her an apology for how they degraded her. But Pamela doesn't spend a lot of time devoting the real estate of her brain to the past in general. It was important to me to show those moments or to question her about them or to show how little money she made. She was on the Playboy cover, I think, more than any other person in history. She was Baywatch, but this is a woman who's still struggling to get by. At least over the last 20 years, she was struggling to make ends meet. And I would have assumed Pamela was extremely wealthy for how famous she was. But those aren't the types of things that are as important to her. Like she sees life uh, I go back to the word romantically. She sees everything so romantically, and that's not being very fame-driven or money-driven. Both of those things turn her off a little bit. And so those moments that she may have been exploited or not made enough money or objectified, she doesn't really see them in a negative light, not many of them at least. And she even has a bunch of, yeah, we don't even include it in our film, but it came out when the film was coming out that... Tim Allen had exposed himself to her on the set of Home Improvement. And it was this huge headline, kind of like a Me Too headline. Tim Allen called her a liar, which I thought was ridiculous. And Pamela is saying, I didn't even think this was that big of a deal, but like it happened. That's where she lives in this gray area. She's not even using that as a moment to expose, no pun intended, Tim Allen as a sexual predator, she's just saying it happened in the hallway once. I have no hard feelings towards him. And it made me all the angrier that he was calling her a liar and saying it never happened. Because I'm like, this is not a woman who makes up stories because they're going to grab her headlines. She just said this as one line in her memoir that it happened one day. And she hasn't looked back on that moment a lot. It's not something that she sees as especially traumatic, but it's the truth. And she wanted to tell the truth in the documentary and the memoir 
And I think that's what's more important to her than anything is just to tell the truth and to not protect other people anymore by hiding the truth. So let's talk about Tommy Lee, who is the lover of Pamela's life, whom she married only four days after her first date with him. From an archival point of view, Tommy clearly loved using a video camera and shooting home movies. And Pamela, maybe to a lesser extent, seems to have shot a bunch of footage too. And as a result, there's tons of this footage for you to work with. And in a sense, you're building a story of this relationship, partly from Pamela's perspective and what she has to say about it and what she wrote about it in her diaries. But you're also building the story of the relationship and his character from the inside out based on this footage. Can you talk about that process? Sure. Pamela is a caricature, right? That's where she feels like she was really pigeonholed as a public figure in the 90s. And Tommy Lee is just as big of a caricature as Pamela. And I'm guilty of this as well with both of them. All I knew was the caricature. And I was lucky enough to get to know Pamela. So of course that chiseled away at that caricature from the very beginning. And I thought, wow, we get to really show this woman underneath or behind the caricature. But Tommy, I knew we weren't going to try to like interview for the film or have him be in the film because I just didn't want that to be the focus. And so getting to watch this archive, which, you know, was hundreds and hundreds of VHS or mini DV tapes that they shot of one another that weren't stolen from the safe in their home and had been preserved. For me, that was my moment of humanizing Tommy Lee. It's, oh, this man isn't this rock star caricature that I've attributed to him since the 90s. There's a real human being underneath this. And He's actually quite endearing and funny and lovely at times. And so what I hope our film does, it not only strips the caricature of Pamela, but I also hope it strips the caricature of Tommy. And that's not to say Tommy Lee is a perfect human being or Pamela is a perfect human being, but I think you get to watch that love story unfold in a way. I, I know I can speak for everyone who worked on the film. We wish we could have put this entire archive out and you could just watch it all because it's so beautiful the way it unfolds. And we had to pick our moments very strategically, but it is a love story. And like a lot of love stories, they don't end happily. And this one definitely didn't. It was a love story that was too passionate. It was too combustible that it was almost doomed from the start, but it's beautiful to watch. And it's beautiful to watch people that are that vulnerable in their love for one another. Looking at this archive made me appreciate Tommy in a way that I had never appreciated him before. And I hope people that watch the film see him as a human being and not just as this wild rock star villain. So the sex tapes, the Pamela and Tommy Lee sex tapes became a huge cultural phenomenon. And for those who haven't seen the film yet or have been under a rock for 30 plus years, the couple had a bunch of their personal video archives, including tapes of them having sex, because I've never seen the tape, so I can't speak to that, in a safe, and the safe was stolen. The tapes then appeared on the internet, which at the time was basically a nascent thing. So these tapes became, in a sense, the first viral video. Pamela and Tommy Lee sued to prevent the tapes from being used, but eventually they dropped the case. And this whole affair just caused a huge ripple effect for Pamela and Tommy Lee personally. It devastated her career. It forever cemented the public's image of her as this kind of internet slut, basically, a caricature, as you say. And she became fodder for every late night host in America. And it may also have contributed to the end of their marriage. Obviously, the folks who stole these tapes and exploited them for money are pretty despicable, I would say and deserve a lot of the blame for these damaging consequences. But what does this whole affair say about us as a society and our relationship with celebrities? What do we have to answer for in this whole affair? Again, I'm guilty as anyone in this regard, I think. But first of all, I don't even remember really knowing as I was coming of age that this tape had been stolen from Pamela and Tommy. I think I just assumed through the 
progressive amount of celebrity sex tapes that came out over time that they were the first to leak their sex tapes. So that's ground zero. It's just establishing that this was a theft from her and something that she really felt like sexually violated her, that this not only was stolen from her home, but then it was proliferated over the burgeoning internet at the time, I think is important to establish. But I was also guilty of thinking, like, even if it is stolen from her, I doubt she really cares that much about it, or it's what made her really famous. So she's probably like secretly grateful for it. It's not until you are with Pamela Anderson. And by the way, these were the worst parts of making my film. We're having to ask her to talk about this. And I think we even show one of those moments on film. She gets physically nauseated and has to go vomit many times while we talked about the stolen tape. And this is like the most open woman that you could ever imagine. She is willing to talk about anything, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, the sexual. Like she gave no guardrails for the film on what she wanted in it or not in it or conversation topics. So this was the only thing whenever we came to this conversation topic where I would see her looking for the exit right away. And so it became a very humanizing embodiment of how traumatized she was by this thing that I would have assumed, like, even if it was traumatic, how traumatic could this have been for you? It is the singular worst moment of her entire life. And it's not even the worst moment. I think it, she sees it as there was the before the tape life and there was the after the tape life. And she's still trying to repair the damage from the release of the tape. And I don't know what it says about us. I hope that the film, and I've seen this in people's reactions, is that people are a lot more, extremely more sensitive to Pamela Anderson and what she went through during this ordeal. I can't speak to internet porn or celebrity sex tapes in general. I can only speak to my experience of having worked with Pamela. But I hope now, I think the good thing is it's the starting place for most people now is that they understand that the tape was stolen and that they're willing to hear her out about that. And that's why our film doesn't focus at all on the theft itself. Who stole it? There's a whole Hulu show. There's a whole series just about the theft and the people behind the theft. Pamela from the beginning was like, I do not give a fuck what the answer to who stole or why they stole or how they got it on the internet. If you ask her that, she wants to shut it down right away. That is not important to me. It ruined my marriage. It ruined my career. It ruined my life in a lot of ways. And I want to move on from it. So I give her a ton of credit for being even willing to revisit it in our film because she knows people are interested and she knew the Hulu show was coming out. So she knew she had to speak to that moment. But it's so traumatic for her that I don't think she wants to spend any more time revisiting it now that we've finished the documentary and that Hulu show has come out. I think she just wants to look forward. I think one of the effects of watching the film is you do feel a sense of indignation about what was done to her and Tommy Lee and that there was no justice done about this theft and exploitation. It's really upsetting and heartbreaking and just makes us think how people can be harmed by other people and have very little recourse. And we have very little sympathy for them because we see them as these caricatures and we have trouble having sympathy, I think, for people that are so successful or wealthy or famous or have used their bodies or their wild antics to fuel their fame. And I hope that the film chisels away at that a little bit, too, in that it makes us a little more sympathetic for what they went through. You talked about how you met with her son, Brandon, when you were deciding whether to make this film or not. I found the presence of Brandon and Dylan in the film to be quite interesting. And I wondered to what extent did their presence on camera in the film alter the emotional center of the film? I feel like the film without the two of them is a very different film, but I can't quite put my finger on it. It's an interesting question because we decided from the beginning that we didn't want to make an interview-based film, minus conversations with Pamela. We didn't want to be going 
to David Hasselhoff and the people at Playboy and looking back at Pam, you know, media and cultural critics, we didn't want to make an interview based film. And so there's this very small nucleus around Pamela. She keeps her world very small. Like she doesn't have a lot of friends in her life. She doesn't have a big team of people that work on her career or her brand. And so those people in her life are basically her parents and her kids. There's a handful of friends and then there's a maybe a husband every five or 10 years. I was so interested from the very beginning. I'm guessing that most people would. I was so interested in the parents. Like, who birthed Pamela Anderson? And what is it like to be Pamela Anderson's parents and to have watched your daughter become this icon, this icon that's famous for sex and her body? And on the other end of the spectrum, I was so fascinated. What is it like for Pamela Anderson to be your mother, especially as boys? Like, what kind of mother is she? And what was that like for these boys to be raised by her? And I would have assumed that Pamela Anderson probably, or at least for her kids, it was rough growing up and that maybe she hadn't been the best mother. And so I was pretty shocked with how much Brandon and Dylan adore their mother and how hands-on she raised them and how much outside of the Hollywood spotlight she raised them. She sent them to school in Canada where she grew up to get them out of Los Angeles. And when they were in Los Angeles, they lived like in a trailer in Malibu for a lot of it where they just surfed every day. And I think if nothing else, Pamela Anderson is a wonderful mother and we wanted that to come through. We, you, she's never going to say that, right? She's never going to say that in the film, but her boys, you can see that the way she interacts with them. And you can see that the way they look at her and the way they talk about her. So it was essential to me that they would be in the film. The interesting part about this family is you would think that having your kids around or having your mother around, that that would neuter the conversation in a way, or that you would have to water down some of the more explicit parts or the wilder parts of your life. This is a family that is very open about everything. And so I actually found having the kids around like often led to the rawest version of Pamela. I love her so much because she's not ashamed of much, even like the parts that I would look at and think, wow, I might be really regretful of that or I wouldn't want my kids to know about that. Pamela is not a very ashamed personality. She just lives life with no regrets. And that includes allowing her children to know these things. I think it was an essential part of the process to watch her opening up around the kids or telling the kids some things that they didn't know for the first time. And as someone who really adores his own mother, it was really beautiful to watch. Yeah, and there are some really nice moments with them. I'm thinking specifically, I think it's Dylan who grabs a hold of her. She says, let's take a walk. And the two of them are arm in arm as they go off to take their walk. It's really lovely. Pamela says at one point near the end, I'm not a victim. And that seems to me to be one explanation for why she and Tommy Lee never got back together. He physically assaulted her. And for that reason, she was never going to take him back in spite of the fact that she still seems to love him and thinks of him as the love of her life. Where do you think that inner strength comes from in Pamela? And is that the thing that's maybe most surprising for us to learn about Pamela from this film? Mm. Or one of them? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. It goes back to what we were talking about, where Pamela lives in these gray areas. I remember being nervous, like, how is this going to be perceived in a film? Because this is a marriage that ended in domestic violence. Now we definitely live in a cancel culture that like, especially something like as egregious as domestic violence that we don't ever want to forgive that person. And understandably, I think, but then we're going to also have a film where Pamela's concluding through the course of the film that Tommy Lee was the love of her life. That was the best romance of her life. And I had to be okay with Pamela being that complicated figure that lived in the gray area. Who am I? to manage her trajectory for her so that it's perceived in a clean and tidy way. This is who she is. And people can conclude from that what they will. But as far as being a victim, so like I said at the beginning of our conversation, Pamela 
never watched the film. She was not interested in knowing anything about the film. The only thing she would ever say to me, and she would plead it with me because we were often talking about heavy things or she was telling me about sexual assaults or rapes or trauma from her parents. And she would always say after we had those really raw conversations when the cameras had cut, Ryan, please don't let this be a sob story. Like, I'm talking about so many sad and traumatic things and I'm just afraid this is going to be like the saddest film for people to watch. And I don't see my life that way. So whatever you do with it, like however you assemble it, that's up to you. But can you please not make it a sob story? Because I do not see myself as a victim. She would always say that over and over. And the worst case scenario to her was she poured her heart out gave her archive, gave her diaries over, and we assembled something that just purely portrayed a victim character. And so I tried to be very thoughtful, and my entire team did when we edited the film to make that shine through throughout, because I believe that in Pamela. That's not how she sees these moments in her life. I think Tommy is a great example that Pamela has an incredible inner strength when it comes down to it. She knew from the moment that Tommy assaulted her that night. I don't even think it was as much for her. It was for her sons that I cannot raise two boys in this type of household where they see this happen to their mother. And it's a model of normalcy or what you can go back to. And so I think despite being a very forgiving personality or a woman who romanticizes the past in a lot of ways, at these few moments in her life where Pamela has had to put her foot down and say no more, she has done that. And I think she will continue to do that. She's someone whose story has been controlled in so many ways by other people, but I think by the mere fact of making this film or writing her memoir, I see her taking control a little more, taking the reins back from her life in a way that correlates with what she did with Tommy, where it's my trajectory will not go in this direction anymore. I am reversing that. And she is so unpredictable. I have no idea where that trajectory will go from here, but I'm I'm excited to watch because I think deep down, Pamela Anderson really is in control of her destiny and she just likes to surprise us. Absolutely. Last question. The film is called Pamela, A Love Story, which is an interesting title because it leaves ambiguous what the love story is between or with. Is it Pamela and Tommy Lee's love story? Is it Pamela's love story with her family or learning to love herself? Is it Pamela's love story with an idealized view of love itself? If you peel away the various layers and parse out all the allusions to love in the film, what love story do you think is at the heart of this story? Oh man, my answer is going to sound so cheesy. It is all of the above. I can't pick one because that's why we named the film A Love Story was because it's an encapsulation of so many love stories within her life or outside of her life that she was looking at. It's also not just sexual or romantic love. It's even in her animal rights or in the way she raised her family. It's all so full of love and heart and it's what's most important to her in the world but my cheesy answer is but i feel the right to say this having been someone who watched her arc at least for two years from the outside i watched a woman at 54 55 56 years old coming into her own in a way that she was deciding that she didn't need other people she didn't need to be mimicking her parents' relationship. In fact, that she needed to break that pattern and that she needed to sound so cheesy, but that she needed to learn to love herself. In fact, she used to have a line in this film, but then I repeated it back to her at some point. And she's like, oh my God, that sounds so cheesy. Don't tell me that I ever said that to you. And I was like, you did. But we used to have this line where she said, maybe it's time to learn to love myself. Maybe this actually is just a love story with myself. It was as she was on this road trip on the way to New York to take on the Chicago role, and she had just gone through this divorce. But that's what I saw from the outside, was this woman coming to terms with self-love and doing things for herself, finally not doing things for other people, like not doing things for her parents or not 
doing things for all these boyfriends or husbands, or she's definitely lived her last 20 years purely for her children and not for herself. And she's finally at this age and a point in culture because people are willing to root for her now. And I think she has career opportunities now that she never had in her 20s and 30s to purely make decisions for herself. That's the cheesy answer, but I do see it as a story of self-love. That's also why it's carefully punctuated and non-capitalized because we didn't want to hit you over the head with it. Pamela hates colons and so do I. I hate subtitles in films and she'll never write with a colon. She's a daily journaler. She says most books need a colonoscopy. And so I showed her the title and she thought it was really representative of her life, not only in the term a love story, but in the way that it was written in a way that's not screaming it from the rooftops that's subtle with its punctuation and non-capitalized letters. So I hate ever seeing it reprinted in the wrong way with a colon or when a love story is capitalized, because that's exactly, we didn't want that type of title. There are a lot of surprises in this film, but one thing that is not a surprise is that your attention to detail would extend to the title itself and its punctuation. Personally, I'm a fan of the semicolon, so I don't know what Pamela or you would think of that, but... I'm okay with it. Pamela's not. I, I like the semicolon, but Pamela does not like that one either. Good to know. Audience, please note that. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the film. It is very surprising in so many ways. I think it's multi-layered, it's engaging, provocative, I would say, in a quiet way. It also is timely in a way that I didn't even realize it would be. So thanks so much for making such a wonderful film and for being with us here today to unpeel some of the layers, even more so. Thank you, Ken. It's always a pleasure talking to you about these films. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that maybe doesn't get the attention that you think it deserves, but something that you'd like to recommend for our audiences? Yeah, I have quite a few hidden gems because I'm just coming off fresh from the Tribeca Film Festival. Two films come to mind that I saw, one called Between the Rains. It's a coming-of-age story about a boy from a tribe in Kenya that was a gorgeous film and a really powerful story. And then I saw another film called Q, the letter Q, that I really loved, that was definitely a singular voice in a filmmaker who made a film about her mom and really about her entire family, but really focusing on her mother. That was a really personal film and really beautifully made and shot just by a young director who seems to be a very promising talent.